So Genesis chapter 12. Now we got a whole heck of a lot to cover. And I'm looking at Gary's here. Gary, good morning. My mom's here. Rita, good morning. I mean, we got all kinds of people. Gary? Yeah, you should clap for my mom. I'm just telling you that right now. No, 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 no. You don't have to now. Mom! Mom! I got to go home with her, guys, so just stop it. <laughs> Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now, if you remember, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. He creates it to be good and creates human beings to be very good. And then, yeah, Genesis 3, uh, the first humans go and, and go from an intimate relationship with God into disobedience, sin and death entered the world. The ripples of that go all throughout creation from Genesis 3 through 11. In Genesis 12, we get the first glimpse of what God, or one of the first glimpses of what God is going to do in response. He uh, calls a man named Abram, we know him as Abraham in uh, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. And then in my Bible, it's indented. There's this great kind of covenant promise that's given to Abram. God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. There will be many descendants, in other words, from Abram, and they will be formed into a nation. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's the key line, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, we start in this passage, we look at this passage a lot, because really the rest of the scripture from this point forward is an outworking of this initial promise given to Abram. For our purposes... We want to look at several different Old Testament passages that kind of have threads attached to them that we'll weave together in about 20 minutes. So these, are, these seem like unrelated threads. Hopefully they'll be woven together in a bit in a tapestry of glory. It'll be fantastic. Now, Genesis 12 is the idea that there's a particular bloodline, an ethnic tribe that will be created, but the purpose of that ethnic tribe isn't to exist for its own self, but to be a blessing to all the nations on earth. Go if you would to Genesis uh, 20, 35. Genesis 35. This is a completely, seemingly unrelated bit of information. Genesis 35. This is one of those... Uh, there. When you read the Bible, particularly if you're new to the Bible, there, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there, there are a lot of verses that you just kind of go, oh, okay, I'm not sure why this made it in here. Uh, and very often, there, there's meaning attached to the things it's saying, but you've got to do a little bit of digging. It's not evident kind of at first glance. And so this is one of those instances. Uh, uh, Genesis 35, verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, where? Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob. Now Jacob, we know, he gets renamed Israel. So Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel, the man, Jacob, moved on again and pitched his tent beyond, and here's a, here's a phrase, Migdal Eder. Fascinating, you all think. Migdal Eder... Uh, is Hebrew, and it means tower uh, of the flocks. It, it's, a, it's a reference to a tower that was set up to oversee flocks of sheep in the region near Bethlehem. So a tower of a flock or a watchtower would be a, a place where shepherds could get up, up high and oversee vast amounts of sheep. Now, 
Why were vast amounts of sheep needed in Israel? Go, if you would, to the book of Exodus chapter 12. This will land in the Christmas story about 20 minutes from now. Exodus chapter 12. So we read about a place called Migdal Eder. Awesome. Bruce, you see it coming, don't you? You see it coming. Bruce. I'm just going to start calling people by name right in the middle. Is there Jenny in here? Jenny? (laughs) Exodus chapter 12. Now, you remember, of course, that, uh, that Charlton Heston delivered the nation of Israel out of slavery. Now, these kids don't even know who that is. Okay, so we'll have to do a Prince of Egypt reference for them. But, so so the book of of, uh, Exodus begins with Israel enslaved in Egypt. God raises up a deliverer, Moses. Moses is a reluctant deliverer uh, who insists on a bit of help. And then together, Moses and Aaron, with the power of God behind them, they perform ten miraculous signs. We call them plagues, but that isn't the best way to describe them. If you know a little bit about the Egyptian religious system, what's interesting is that each of these plagues, in my view, was targeting a different Egyptian deity. So there was a god of the Nile. There was a god of the sun. So when the sun goes, is blotted out from the sky... It was an attack on the sun god Ra. It was Yahweh demonstrating his power over the Egyptian deities. Now, one of the Egyptian deities was Pharaoh himself, who was considered firstborn of the gods. And Pharaoh's firstborn son was also considered firstborn of the gods. And Egypt early on, not early on, but at this point, had decreed that the firstborn of Israel should die. So God, as the tenth and final plague, said that I'm going to take Egyptian firstborn. And and so God said, listen, all of Egypt is under my judgment. I'm going to take the firstborn of every household, except for those that take a sheep without defect, a lamb without defect, sacrifice it, take the blood and anoint the door frames and I will pass over those houses. And so that's an event we know as Passover. Now, we read about it in Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses, verse 1, and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your whole year. The whole calendar was to be built around this event. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his entire family, one for each household. If any household is too small, For a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Now this is key. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Verse 6, take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Now, this wasn't just something that was to happen one time. Jump down to verse 14. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. So literally, you would need, I mean, however many families there were, you would need a a, a sheep or a goat per family every year around Passover for this festival. And so literally you would need hundreds and hundreds and thousands of thousands of sheep specifically prepared to be without defect to celebrate Passover every year. There wasn't just yearly sacrifices though, there were daily sacrifices. Go to the book of Numbers. Ha ha, 28. You didn't see that one, Bruce. You didn't see that one coming. 
Numbers 28. Go, yeah, go to Numbers 28. There were daily sacrifices too. Now, I know you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Oh, it's coming. Have I not earned your trust? (laughs) Numbers 28. Verse 3. Say to the Israelites, this is the food offering you are to present to the Lord. Two lambs, a year old without defect, as a regular burnt offering. How often? Each day. Okay, offer one lamb in the morning, the other at twilight. So typically that was done at nine in the morning and three in the afternoon. Okay, because twilight wasn't when it gets dark. It was when, it was, it was when the sun began its descent. So, so it was every day. So you have, you have lambs that you needed to be without defect for, and massive amounts of lambs for Passover, now you need lambs too for daily sacrifices. All right, are you with me on this wonderfully clear point? Now, one more thread. So we've got a thread from Genesis 12. This is to be for all the people. We've got a thread, a separate thread from Genesis 35 about a place called Migdal Eder, which was a watchtower that oversaw flocks of sheep. Then we have two threads that say, Why do you need lots of sheep? Well, for Passover every year, and then you have daily sacrifices. Now, one more thread, and then we'll start weaving them together. Go to the book of Micah. See that one coming, Bruce? You did? Oh, come on, Bruce. He taunts me. Micah chapter 5. We will start in verse 2. This is a very, very famous messianic promise by Jesus' day. It was clearly thought and understood to be in reference to where the Messiah would be born. If you're looking for Micah, go past Hosea. That's funny. Is it past Hosea? Yeah, yeah, it is. Are you there yet? Micah chapter 5. Verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, and then another word, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So remember when King Herod hears about this king of the Jews from the Magi, and he says, hey, scribes, where's the, where's the Messiah to be born? Bethlehem was the answer, and this was the reference. But, right before this reference is another one that's a bit more obscure. Chapter 4, verse 8. Did you see that, Bruce? (laughs) Dang it. Micah, chapter 4, verse 7. Evidently, this whole sermon is not for Bruce. I'm sorry. Bruce and I are friends. And he gets a little cocky. Sometimes he thinks he can figure out where I'm headed before I get there. So I'm just, I'm going to go to Job just to throw you off. I'm sorry. If you're new, the regular teacher will be back next week. (laughs) And will it be a regular service? (laughs) Micah chapter 4, verse 7. 
In that day, the Lord says, I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day forever. As for you, what's the next phrase? Right, Migdal Eder is the phrase. As for you, Migdal Eder, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come from daughter Jerusalem. By Jesus' day, it was taught specifically that it's not just anywhere in Bethlehem that the Messiah would appear. It was at Migdal Eder that the Messiah would appear. Now, if you don't buy that that's what it's saying, there's a, there's a, a targum, a Jewish targum, which you're going, what? Uh, which I want to throw up there. Now, when the Jews were in Babylonian exile, many of them ceased speaking Hebrew, and so they began to translate the scriptures into Aramaic. What the translators would do is very often interpret, not just translate, but interpret and add commentary to the scriptures. And so, so this is a Jewish targum specifically translating Genesis 35, the passage we read about where Jacob moved on beyond Bethlehem and pitched his tent at Bignal Eder. This is how it was understood and this is, this is hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. This is the Aramaic translation. He spread his tent, Jacob spread his tent beyond Migdal Eder, the place where King Messiah will reveal himself at the end of days. In other words, hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, it was taught that from Bethlehem will come the Savior, but specifically this place called Migdal Eder, this watchtower of the flock, would be the place where Messiah would be revealed. Now, let's go to the book of Luke, chapter 2. Relevance. Luke, chapter 2. Now what's interesting is Luke takes special care to mention that it was the census of Caesar Augustus that drove Joseph and Mary back to what city? Bethlehem. So we are in Bethlehem when this following event takes place. Verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. If you were Jewish, and you would have heard this, where, first of all, who are the shepherds, and what sheep are they watching? Everyone would have known that right outside of Bethlehem was this watchtower called Migdal Eder. It was the place where you oversaw the flocks of sheep that were to be kept for sacrifice. So these weren't just any shepherds. These were the shepherds that were tasked specifically with separating blemished from unblemished lambs and goats. In other words, these were the overseers of the sheep destined for sacrifice. So it's not like just a bunch of dudes standing around in bathrobes going, well, what are we going to do tonight? You know, and oh, here are angels. It's awesome. No, no, no. This is in direct fulfillment to the promise that was given through the prophet Micah. And you, watchtower of the flock, will have a kingdom restored to you. So here comes Jesus outside of Bethlehem at a place where shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks. Where would that be? 
Migdal Eder. In fact, the Mishnah, the Jewish codification of oral tradition, refers to the fact that the flocks around Bethlehem were kept for sacrifice, and the church historian Eusebius confirms it also. So, you have all of these trains of evidence suggesting that the shepherds there weren't just any shepherds, they were tasked specifically with watching the sheep that would be going to Jerusalem for sacrifice, and that these weren't just any sheep, these were to be sheep that were kept specifically to be without blemish. One of the very interesting things that happens to these sheep is that when they were born, the, at, the, at, the, at the top of the watch power, tower is where you would kind of oversee the flocks, but in the bottom, there was a room specifically used for when the lambs would give birth. And you would take a newborn lamb, and this is historical sources, take a newborn lamb, wrap it in swaddling clothes, and place it in a shallow depression called a feeding trough or a manger. And the reason you would do that is because you wanted them to be without blemish, and they're all kind of spindly and and crooked, and they're falling over. And so you would wrap them until they grew a little bit into their bodies. Isn't that interesting? I mean, see, what you learn when you start studying the Scriptures is that anybody can open the Bible and benefit. Anybody. You don't have to know a thing. But that you can also at the same time spend your entire life studying this stuff and never reach the bottom of it. Because God is a genius. I don't know if that's news to anybody. But he kind of, he kind of keeps his promises. And so one of the things that's so interesting to notice is that these, these shepherds aren't just any shepherds. They were shepherds specifically tasked with keeping an eye out for unblemished sheep and goats. And here comes this Jesus. Now notice what else is said. An angel of the Lord, verse 9, appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. That's the first thing you learn in angel training school. So whenever you show up, it's not a hallmark warm moment. It's like the first thing you got to say, angels, is don't be afraid, because people will freak out. An angel of the Lord appeared, the glory of the Lord shone around them, they were terrified, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy, for who? All the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, he is Messiah the Lord. Now notice this next phrase, this will be a sign to you, shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Why is that a sign for shepherds? Because that's what they did. Not only would you do that to newborns generally in peasant homes, but they would do that to newborn lambs. So isn't it interesting that the sign given to shepherds is specific to the shepherds? How will you recognize this Messiah? Well, he's dressed up like one of the little ones you take care of all the time. Isn't that fascinating? Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appear with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom His favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go! And in Greek it's emphatic. And let's go and see this thing that the angels have spoken of. Now, what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks has just been reminding ourselves that the, that the very silent, warm, fuzzy, traditional understanding of the Christmas story doesn't quite capture all of its nuance. Right? That, that Jesus was born with the tag of mamzer and illegitimacy over him. That the announcement given to these shepherds, but then repeated 
throughout the decades and centuries was totally subversive of the Roman Empire and all the propaganda that Caesar Augustus had. But it was also in fulfillment to promises that God had made before about where the great shepherd, right, one of the things that Jesus calls himself, the shepherd, the good shepherd, where that great shepherd would be born. And so he appears to shepherds preparing flocks for sacrifice. And, 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 the, and, and the imagery, of course, carries forward, right? When Jesus, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem at the end of his life, is on the exact day Passover lambs were chosen. And then Passover lambs were examined for four days in Jewish homes to make sure they were without blemish. Well, in Matthew's account, particularly, Jesus is questioned and examined for four days. Until on the fifth day, he goes up on the cross in the, at, at the exact time the, the first lambs were slaughtered, and then dies. He gives, up a spirit, it gives up his spirit at the exact moment when the Passover lambs at twilight were slaughtered. And the Bible just takes a lot of care to record this for us. So that Paul will say about this Jesus, he is our Passover lamb. Now he's a lot more than that, but one of the very fascinating parts of the Christmas story is that Jesus, these weren't just ordinary shepherds. And that this was good news of great joy, specifically for them. Now, it was good news of great joy for, I think, three reasons, at least. One was that it was in fulfillment of the promises that God had made earlier. That God is a God who keeps his promises. And what's interesting, guys, is that you and I, 2,000 years later, are in the exact same place the ancient Israelites were in. The ancient Israelites had all of these promises about the coming Messiah and were sick to death of waiting for him. Aren't we in the same spot? I mean, how many of us on Friday afternoon, as this whole tragedy in Connecticut is unfolding, how many of us just said, come Lord Jesus? Can we just, can you come and can you just take this and, and turn it back to the way that you had intended it? I mean, this is horrible. This is, I mean, every time we think we've reached the bottom of depravity, we just find more inventive ways, right? And so there's this set, collective sense in which the waiting and anticipation the Jews felt in waiting for the first coming, we, as followers of Jesus, feel in waiting for his second coming, and so can you imagine, I mean, could you, I can't, it would blow my mind to hear a rumor that Jesus was returning soon. I mean, and to have it authoritatively spoken, not from some kind of fringe group. I mean, imagine the anticipation, I mean, what, when you're a shepherd, and, and, and <laughs> these people, even, even though they weren't like highly educated, would have had a basic knowledge of the New Testament, or the Old Testament scriptures, I mean, can you imagine the good news of great joy that you hear now that God at long last is fulfilling his promise? So it was good news of great joy because he keeps his word. It's good news of great joy too because there's this fascinating line added that Luke adds. It's good news of great joy for all the people. Remember, and good news was the word that Caesar used to describe good news of military victory. Was Caesar's good news good news for all the people? Of course not. This was good news for all the people, and the fact that it was given to shepherds first was proof of all the peopleness. Because shepherds, ancient Israel was ambivalent towards shepherds. 
On the one hand, you have God, the Lord is my shepherd, and David was a shepherd. But on the other hand, certainly among some groups of rabbis, shepherds, not a savory profession. You were around animal dung all the time, dead animals. You, couldn't, uh, you could not participate in Sabbath or religious festivals. So some had declared them to be perpetually unclean. They were thought, at least it's by some folks, to be dishonest. They couldn't testify in a court of law. And in fact, there's one part in the Mishnah that, that there was a debate, and I know you think this is horrible, but there was a debate about, horrible I mean and uninteresting, I love it. There was a debate about what food, you were supposed to pay a tithe on all of your food. But the question was, do we tithe on the food we give our dogs? It was called dog bread. So the, 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 the rabbis were debating what counts as human food that you have to tithe on and what counts as dog food that you don't. And here was the test they devised. If a shepherd would eat it, it's human food. And if a shepherd wouldn't, it's dog food. So... If you're Jewish and you're hearing that the announcement is given to shepherds, even though the shepherds had a priestly, a bit of a priestly function, you still would have been a bit, I mean, it would be like me saying, hey, Messiah is going to be at a 12-step program in the basement of a church here in Fullerton. Or, or there, there's a gathering of prostitutes that, that, at Denny's at three in the morning that Jesus is going to show up at. I mean, you just go, nah, no. This is how it's supposed to work. And so one of the most fascinating parts of the Christmas story is that it is for all the people and shepherds are proof of it's all for peopleness. Because that is in direct fulfillment of Genesis 12. It's for all the people. And that's why when the Magi show up from the east, that's the significance of that. Non-Jewish people were worshiping this baby. Why? Because this baby will be a blessing, Genesis 12, to all the nations of the world. But it's good news of great joy for one other reason. And that has to do with what joy is. Okay, the Greek word for great is the word megas. It's the word we use to get mega, like megalotto. So megas, joy, megas is like exceedingly great, superior. The word joy is the word kara. It's related to a word that, that we know as charis or grace. Joy has to do with understanding the grace of things, the undeserving of things. And in fact, if you take charis and you attach in Greek a little EU, you get Eucharist, which is Thanksgiving. I mean, it's this rich word that joy is related to. The thing about joy is joy is different than happiness, biblically. Happiness is very circumstantial. In my house, with our kids, we do this thing called thumbs up and thumbs down. Thumbs up is something good that happened to your day. Thumbs down is something that is bad that happened today. And those reports vary every day, right? They're totally circumstantial. My happiness, totally dependent upon circumstance. Joy, however, is a bit different. Let's fire up the joy of the iPad. The gospel, this is, I love this. The gospel remains a scandal... Because it announces joy right when everything is falling apart. See, one of the things that is the juxtaposition of the Christian life is that even in the face of what happened Friday, we still sing joy to the world. Even when you're not feeling joyful, we still sing joy to the world. Why? I mean, part of the scandal of this 
is that right when everything is falling apart, when today's experts offer sober assessments of the current situation, and in their euphoric moments can only say they remain cautiously optimistic, the tone of the gospel is foreign to this. And it wasn't like the baby all of a sudden just magically appeared and overthrew Caesar. There was still suffering, still oppression, still injustice. And yet somehow the story is a baby in a manger changes everything. And that it's good news of great joy even in the midst of darkness. Joy is not to be confused with happiness. The root of happiness is weak sauce. Meaning chance. As in happenstance or haphazard. Happiness depends on things going our way. Whereas joy is based on the knowledge of the presence of God with us at all times. Which means... We could celebrate it when things are not going our way, even in the midst of grief and sadness. The only condition for joy is the presence of God. Joy happens when God is present and people know it, which means it can erupt in a depressed economy in the middle of a war or in an intensive care waiting room. See, that is what's so interesting in the Scriptures is that joy and suffering are related See, when you suffer, you can't be happy. Happy, Happiness and suffering are mutually exclusive, but not joy. Joy is different. Go if you would to 1 Thessalonians. Did you see that one? (laughs) Finally did not see that one coming. How about Psalm 126? Nope. Joy, why is this great, good news of great joy? Well, first, it's fulfillment. Second, it's for all the people. But third, it's joy right in the midst of darkness and sorrow. I'm in the book of Revelation, which is not where I want to be. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Notice, Paul writes, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So evidently, you can be in the midst of severe suffering and have the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Go to Psalm 126 really quickly. Psalm 126. Verse 5. You know, I get paid to do this. Just staggering. Just staggering. Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy. So it's not only that joy could be present in the midst of suffering, but somehow... Sorrow prepares the way for suffering. Excuse me, (laughs) butchered that. It's not just that joy can be found in the midst of suffering. It's that suffering prepares the way for joy. Now, have you ever thought about this? So, our little boy, three and a half year old, Seth Erie, he has Down syndrome, as you, many of you know. He's going to make his dramatic appearance tonight in the Christmas Eve Disabilities Christmas Extravaganza Maybe as a cow. I'm not sure. I told Connie, I said, listen, if you need 
an almost four-year-old to take off his pants, take off his diaper, and run around naked, he's your guy. He is your guy. So I don't know, maybe there's some sort of connection there to the Christmas story. But our journey with him has been an interesting journey because... You know, th- there have been moments in our journey with him where um, we-, we were sitting, for instance, with the school district, and they-, they did an evaluation of him. And they were reporting their findings, and there were several places where he was in the first percentile developmentally. In other words, 99% of his contemporaries were ahead of him. Now, did I feel particularly happy to hear in this category, and in this category, and in this category, he's that delayed? Was I thrilled with that? Absolutely not. Nor were we thrilled initially with the news that he had Down syndrome. I've told you a bit of this. But what's been interesting has been to see the relationship between the sorrow we feel and the joy we feel with his presence in our lives. It's related. It's almost like any sorrow we feel or grieving hollows us out enough so that the joy we feel in moments is correspondingly as great. It's, it's like your bottom, the bottom range of your emotions gets bigger, but that pushes the top range of your emotions. So, so that the sorrow is more sorrowful, but the joy is greater. And, and the way this works for us is that Seth has forced us, not forced us, but he, he, he teaches us to celebrate things that everyone else takes for granted. Right? I mean, and parents for special needs kids will tell you, I mean, you celebrate crazy things. So, Our little boy, he has very short arms, so we kind of call him our little T-Rex. And 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 there was one day, and they told us they told us like clapping is a big deal. And so so I remember specifically the moment when he brought with great intentionality and fortitude those two hands together purposefully to make noise and did it and 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 we were so excited i know this is silly but we were so excited that he we scared him from doing it again for like the next several weeks but we went nuts now again now i have two other kids did we um, it was great when they clapped but but when you're in the first percentile man you take everything you can get right And so the joy we felt in that moment, or the joy we feel when he says certain things or when he catches something, I mean, it's it's almost like it hollows us out to make room for joy. The sorrow hollows us out. I mean, we we, we had his first academic awards for his little class this week, okay? So grandma and I show up, and and he's in this little class, you know, and, and, and they're giving. I mean, they're they're... To be honest, they're just making up reasons to give these kids awards. So there, one kid got an award for effort in going to the restroom, you know, which if I had those rewards, I, I'd be, I wouldn't have room for them all. Um, another kid got, you know, paying attention in circle time. I mean, it was awesome. But little Sefi, little Seth, he gets called up for knowledge of zoophonics. And we, with all the joy, right? We just praise the kid and take pictures and go berserk. Why? Why? Because whatever bit of sorrow we've carried along the way has made room so that the highs are higher with Him. So why is this good news of great joy? 
First, it's fulfillment. Second, it's for all the people. But third, because it happens right when the world is dark. It's in the presence of darkness. It's not, it's good news of great joy in the middle of a world that feels out of control. Do you understand the feeling we all felt? At least a lot of us felt on Friday. I mean, that was, that was just life in the first century. I mean, Herod is going to slaughter a bunch of kids in response to this Jesus. I mean, this was just called life in the first century. So why do we, of all people, have the audacity in the face of such human tragedy to sing joy to the world? We say it's because the Lord is come. Not the Lord has come, but the Lord is come. In other words, where do you find Him? Do you find Him separated off somewhere where it's all clean and beautiful? Or do you find Him right in the middle of the dirt and the mud and the filth of human life? The reason we sing it's joy to the world is because Christmas is the demonstration that human history is going someplace. Because God doesn't, God doesn't from up top just start rearranging human history like you would a river. He dives in the middle of the cesspool. See, when I was, I, I went through a season where I was really, really depressed and anxious. And I had a friend who'd been through some of that stuff. And he came alongside of me. And I remember we were at my house and I just felt hopeless and it was awful. And here's what he said. He said, Mike, it won't always be this way. It just won't always be this way. And I said, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, no, 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 no. You really don't believe that. But it won't always be this way. It won't always be this way. If you can hang on, it won't always be this way. The Christmas story is joy to the world because it's the announcement that it won't always be this way. We live with the same agony of anticipation that the first century Jews lived with. That God, though He says He's not slow in keeping His promises, He feels slow in keeping His promises. 2,000 years of slow, at least so far. And so why do we gather to fight our way through the tinsel and the busyness and the craziness, to read of shepherds and censuses and virgins giving birth, it's because it reminds us the Word has been spoken. It won't always be this way. You are here with sorrow, agony, and suffering, and we can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that it won't always be this way for you. It just won't always be this way. That God's faithfulness in the past gives us rugged faith in the present to anticipate the divine cleanup of the world inaugurated by Jesus, but will be consummated by Him in His return. So whenever we sing the psalms and sing the hymns and the carols of longing that the ancient Israelites sang, that's for us too as we wait. That's why, as Paul says, we grieve. What happened Friday was horrific. And it is evil. And it's not the product of socialization. I mean, it's the product of sin and death entering the world and tarnishing everything. But that's why we can come on a Sunday and still sing Joy of the World. That's why some of you are suffering in your lives right now. And you come and you sing Joy of the World. Because evidently, a baby in a manger makes a difference. Evidently, 
Jesus is the declaration that it just won't always be this way. And if you can hold on, it won't be this way forever. That there will come a time in human history where tears will be wiped away and fears will be replaced with joy and mourning replaced with dancing. That evidently, as Paul writes, I consider our light and momentary troubles to be achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Well, they don't feel light and momentary when you're in them. But evidently, we'll consider them that way at some point. And so we sit and we grieve. But as Paul says, but not as those who have no hope. Because the Lord has come. And so Lord Jesus we recognize the deep and abiding reality of evil and darkness in our world. And we also recognize the deep and abiding promise that is represented in the Christmas story, but really is the point of the whole scriptures. That you've not left us to ourselves. That you come to rescue and deliver. And that the Lord Jesus is present. He has come. He is coming today and every day. And he will come again. And so in that tension we live and ask grace to worship.